Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my friend, Richard Leduc. Hello. And we wanted to continue our conversation about one of the most important revelations that Joseph Smith ever received, the vision, Doctrine and Covenant section 76. We talked an awful lot about the, the radical nature of it, and especially the, what really sets apart Latter-day Saints from, from other Christians. And it's not just the idea of an exaltation. In 1832, Joseph Smith hasn't really received a whole lot of knowledge about what exaltation is going to consist of. Now, he'll he'll later receive a lot of it, right? Culminating in the King Follett sermon, which we'll, we'll cover in some future podcasts. But the, the, the aspect of hell not being an eternal destination for people, that everyone would eventually outside of the sons of perdition, eventually receive a kingdom of glory. And that those kingdoms of glory were not just horrific places where you sat around the entire time suffering because you weren't in the celestial kingdom, but in fact, even the celestial world was was a kingdom of bliss and, and that Jesus would save everyone except those sons of perdition. Well, one of the things that uh, we wanted to talk about uh, in, in, in this episode is a question that's often asked, and so I'll turn that over to, to Richard to go ahead and, and, and share it how he usually hears it. So we know that we're assigned to a specific kingdom based on either things done in this life or things that happen afterwards, whether we receive the gospel in spirit prison, work for the dead is done, we've accepted Christ. We are in a, a particular kingdom. Is there progression from kingdom to kingdom, celestial to terrestrial, and and so on? So that's that's a great question. That's why we wanted to cover it a little bit because I would guess that if this question were asked to most, again, I can only speak to you know I'm most familiar with American Latter Day Saints, that the response would generally be no. That people would say. No, you can't progress from kingdom to kingdom. Wherever you go after the resurrection, after the final judgment, that's the end. Now, at the same time, many people would say, well, you can progress within the kingdom, right? That you can you can go from, you know, I, apparently there's, you know, some kind of lower level. We really only know that there's three degrees inside of the celestial kingdom. And then we kind of assume that, well, if there's three degrees in the celestial, there's probably at least some kind of degrees in the terrestrial. And the idea that there's this various separations all along the way, because God isn't just arbitrarily placing two people together, you know, that that had wildly different lives that they lived. You know, well, neither one of you are valiant in your testimony of Jesus. Well, this person, you know, was a horrible person and did all kinds of terrible things to people. This person didn't pay their parking tickets. I don't know. I don't know what. I'm not going to be judging anyone, obviously. And and so, um, you know, this idea, the thought that there's these variations. And I think most people are fine with that. That there's an idea that if you know, maybe 
inside the terrestrial kingdom, there's multiple levels. And that if you enter the terrestrial on one of the lowest levels, that you could eventually get to one of the highest levels. But that's that's the end of it. That that you can't go any further than that. Well, I, again, I say that that's generally one of it would be a belief that would be held by by I would say most Latter Day Saints if they were asked. And there's reasons for that. Um, one of the uh, apostles who speaks most uh, directly to this is uh, Elder Bruce R. McConkie. In 1994, he gave a very famous uh, speech at, at, at BYU uh, and titled The Seven Deadly Heresies. And in it, he listed off things that were you know, creeping falsehoods that people needed to not believe. And he spoke directly to that idea that people could progress from kingdom to kingdom. He said, there are those who say that there is a progression from one kingdom to another in the eternal worlds or that lower kingdoms eventually progress to where the higher kingdoms once were. You know, in that second idea, what he's saying is, you know, if there's eternal progression, even in the lower kingdoms, then eventually your celestial will be where the celestial once was. And that celestial being like, I don't know, uber celestial, like the super celestial coin of phrase. I don't know how you draw that circle for our little circle chart, but, um, and he is saying this belief lulls men into a state of carnal security. It causes them to say that God is so merciful. Surely he will save us all eventually. If we do not gain the celestial kingdom now, eventually we will. So why worry? Now notice, first of all, how Elder McConkie is using the term save there, right? We, we talked about how Joseph Smith, when he's using the term, Jesus will save everyone. He's meaning save them from hellfire, which is the standard Christian definition of save. Here, Elder McConkie is using it in, in terminology of actually exaltation, that God will save everyone. No, he will exalt everyone eventually. That's what he's using. There's nothing right or wrong about the usage, just so you know, that, that you know, we say, we use a lot of Christian words all the time. We just don't mean the same thing when we say them, right? So we say, we say damn all the time. A lot more when we're watching a BYU football game, but we, 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 we say it, but we don't mean what a Christian means when they say it. They mean someone who's forever unable to escape punishment, and we are saying, well, actually, they, they do. Same thing with, with hell, right? We, we use the term hell. We say hell all the time. But when we say it, we mean a place of temporary suffering for sin. When a Christian says it, they mean eternal suffering for sin forever i i think that this is one of the things that i lacked an understanding of when i was on my mission i i would oftentimes i would be in a gospel discussion with somebody at the door or perhaps even in teaching a a discussion and i wasn't i wasn't aware of these differences enough to know that i was saying a word and they were saying a word and we were talking right past each other even things as simple as who God is and who Jesus is. And, yeah, and that happens a lot. I mean, we use a lot of the same terminology of other Christians, but when we say it, we mean something completely different. So a, g- a great example, heaven, right? Christians want to go to heaven. Latter-day Saints want to go to heaven. What we think heaven is couldn't be further apart from them. There are some similarities. Sounds good, right? It's a good place, so that's that's a similarity. But the reality is, we believe in the truest sense, you know, heaven is this exaltation. It's not just going to a place that God is, it's becoming as God is. That is not what a Christian means when they say go to heaven. 
Um, and, and so that, that here we've got something similar that the term save can actually have a lot of different meanings. Am I saved from hellfire? Am I saved? Meaning I'm in the highest degree of glory of the celestial kingdom, meaning exalted. And, and you'll hear that's what he's saying. Um, but he's criticizing it because of the, of the fact that that might cause some people to say, well, I mean, if we're all going to eventually be exalted, I guess what difference does it make? God will beat me with a few stripes. Yeah, and at last we'll be saved in the kingdom of God. And there'll be many which will teach after the false man and foolish doctrine. Right? Um, uh, Elder McConkie goes on, it lets people live a life of sin here and now with the hope that they will be saved eventually. And again, he means exalted eventually. The true doctrine is that all men will be resurrected, but they will come forth in the resurrection with different kinds of bodies, some celestial, others terrestrial, others celestial, and some with bodies incapable of standing any degree of glory. The body we receive in the resurrection determines the glory we receive in the kingdoms that are prepared. They neither progress from one kingdom to another, nor does a lower kingdom ever get to where a higher kingdom once was. Whatever eternal progression there is, it is within a sphere. That's the idea that if there's progression, it's within a kingdom. Now, he's not alone in that. I mean, uh, Elder uh, Spencer W. Kimball, b- before he was uh, the prophet, when he was uh, um, a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles in, in writing the miracle of forgiveness, he wrote that after a person has been assigned to his place in the kingdom, either in the celestial or the terrestrial or celestial or to his exaltation, he will never advance from his assigned glory to another glory. That is eternal. That is why we must make our decisions early in life and why it's imperative that such decisions be right. So those are both pretty definitive statements that you can't progress. You can understand why it is that people would say you can't progress. So where are they pulling that from as it relates to the scriptures? So primarily it's coming from uh, the statements that come from Doctrine and Covenants section 132, talking about those who don't enter into this new and everlasting covenant of marriage. That's the end of their increase, right? So uh, there's there's that, and then certainly how they believe and understand this this meaning that you're assigned to a kingdom, and that assignment is permanent. It's where you go. Um, there's there's not a it, Elder Kimball at the time. Elder Kimball doesn't. Um, he doesn't actually even address the idea of progressing within a kingdom, right? Elder McConkie in his statement does that, you know, if you, there's progression, it's progression inside of a kingdom. It's not other than that. But there are other uh, statements as well. Uh, if we go back uh, far enough, we can get back to Hiram Smith. Now at the time, Hiram Smith is actually the assistant prophet of the church. You probably don't know that as one of the more common um, uh, offices in the church. Um, it's outside of the first presidency. He essentially is made like a co-prophet by revelation. And so uh, Hiram is, is is the highest you can be and not be Joseph. And uh, he's recorded as saying that those of the telestial, this is in 1843, August 1st, 1843, those of the terrestrial glory either advance to the celestial or recede to the telestial or else the moon could not be a type or a symbol of that kingdom, for the moon waxes and wanes. That's interesting. He's saying not just goes up. Right, which is actually more scary, right? Because <laughs> I hope that you know when I go to the celestial kingdom that it's like a sandals resort, right? And I don't want to have to... I don't want to have to like rebook the, the... you know. I want to be able to just you know hang out by the pool. And so the idea that you could make choices 
in those spheres that could cause you to go down as well as up is certainly, I mean, that, that's a different dimension altogether. And that, that's what, what Hiram says. I mean, if you were looking for some kind of a idea of that, something happens with Lucifer. Lucifer is clearly very highly progressed, very, you know, we, we don't know where he, how he's gotten to where he's at at his favored status. And even though he's in that favored status, he falls. So if someone, I mean, the idea that someone could be with God and still fall seems to be established by the, by Lucifer's actions in and of itself. But that's, that's prior, not after the assignment. Right, that's prior, right. But still in the presence of God. Um, Brigham Young is a little bit more direct on this. Uh, it's hard to believe. Um, uh, one of the best parts about Brigham Young is at least he tells you what he's thinking. Um, this is from Wilfred Woodruff's journal. He records uh, a sermon from Brigham Young, um, a discussion really in August 1855. In conversing upon the various principles, President Young thought that none would inherit this earth when it became celestial and translated into the presence of God, but those that would be crowned as gods and able to endure the fullness of the presence of God, except that they might be permitted to take some servants with them for whom they'd be held responsible. All others would have to inherit another kingdom, even that kingdom agreeing with the law which would, which which they had kept. So that sounds pretty standard, right? That only those who are going to become crowned as gods would, would then inherit this earth when this earth is celestialized. Then he goes on. Yet, he thought that they would eventually have the privilege of proving themselves worthy and advancing to a celestial kingdom, but it would be a slow progress. So here, at least in 1855, Brigham Young's expressing his belief that while it would be very difficult, the possibility of progression exists. Um, that that is uh, again different than these this other thought. Um, Wilfred Woodruff is also going to give a an idea of this expansion. Um, he says the law of God is in the mouths of those who are set to lead us. If the Lord should give a revelation through them that would appear contrary to our traditions, our customs, or reveal new principles, things which have been hid from the foundation of the world, it should not try the faith of the saints. The Lord has given revelations according to the capacity of the children of men. If there was a point where man in his progression could not proceed any further, the very idea would throw a gloom over every intelligent and reflecting mind. God himself is increasing and progressing in knowledge and power and dominion and will do so worlds without end. It is just so with us. We are in a probation, which is a school of experience. So this idea that everyone is in some way eternally progressing again opens the door to that idea. Now, while those are earlier ones, even in the 20th century, we have apostles and, in fact, uh, members of the First Presidency who express an idea that suggests that they're that they at least believe that there is uh, the possibility of progression outside of the kingdoms. Uh, President J. Reuben Clark, um, and this is actually published in the church news, so this is not just some obscure talk he gave somewhere. This The church news published it. You can find it April 23rd, 1960. He said, I'm not a strict constru uh, constructionalist, believing that we seal our eternal progress by what we do here. It's my belief that God will save all of his children that he can, 
And while, if we live unrighteously here, we shall not go to the other side with that same status, so to speak, as those who lived righteously, nevertheless, the unrighteous will have their chance, and in the eons of the eternities that are to follow, they too may climb to the destinies to which they who are righteous and serve God have climbed to those eternities that are to come. So he's expressing this idea. This idea is also expressed probably a little bit more familiarly um, to most people, I would guess, in a conference address that's given by Orson F. Whitney in April of 1929. He's addressing the idea, and, and really it's it's got to be one of the most painful things that exists. The pain and the anguish that's felt by the parent whose child has been taught the gospel and uses their agency and chooses to reject it and to go away. And many grieving parents find themselves in the position of that prodigal son's father so many years ago in the story that Jesus told of losing that child to the things that matter most to them and praying for that eventual return. And if that return comes, it is time to kill the fatted calf and the music and dance because this my son was dead is, is, is alive again. And so as he's speaking to that, Elder Whitney says, you parents of the willful and the wayward, don't give up on them. Don't cast them off. They're not utterly lost. The shepherd will find his sheep. They were his before they were yours, long before he entrusted them to your care. And you cannot begin to love them as he loves them. They have but strayed in ignorance from the path of right, and God is merciful to ignorance. Only the fullness of knowledge brings the fullness of accountability. Our Heavenly Father is far more merciful, infinitely more charitable than even the best of his servants. And the everlasting gospel is mightier in power to save than our narrow, finite minds can comprehend. Orson F. Whitney was not simply speaking from his own ideas here. He was speaking because he had in his possession the copy of a revelation that was given to his grandfather, Newell K. Whitney. And he he shared this eventually with, with Joseph F. Smith. And so he's he, he's he's speaking from not only his own personal family history, but this of this private revelation that they were given through the prophet Joseph Smith. He, so he goes on and, and, and he, he quotes, or he at least references part of it here. The prophet Joseph Smith declared, and he never taught a more comforting doctrine, that the eternal ceilings of faithful parents and the divine promises made to them for valiant service in the cause of truth would save not only themselves, but likewise their posterity. Though some of the sheep may wander, the eye of the shepherd is upon them, and sooner or later they will feel the tentacles of divine providence reaching out to them and drawing them back to the fold, either in this life or in the life to come. They will return. They will have to pay their debt to justice. They will suffer for their sins, and they may tread a thorny path. But if it leads them at last, like the penitent prodigal, to a loving and forgiving father's heart and home, the painful experience will not have been in vain. Pray for your careless and disobedient children. 
Hold on to them with your faith. Hope on, trust on, till you see the salvation of God. This I mean, powerful uh, sermon that he gives. I, I love the aspect of saying that we don't comprehend either the power of the sealing power or the mercy of our Father in heaven. And Orson F. Whitney's saying this because he has this revelation that's been in his family, this this blessing that's given from the prophet Joseph Smith. And I mean, I can read part of that uh, to you. Verily thus saith the Lord unto my servant Newell K. Whitney, the thing that my servant Joseph Smith has made known unto you and your family, in which you have agreed upon is right in mine eyes, and shall be crowned upon your heads with honor and immortality and eternal life to all of your house, both old and young. Because of the lineage of my priesthood, saith the Lord, it shall be upon you and upon your children after you from generation to generation by virtue of the holy promise which I now make unto you. This idea that this sealing, that that these these agreements these parents enter into would actually have the ability to extend those tentacles of mercy as as Orson F. Whitney uses even to people who uh, posterity who might have been wayward and that's really the premise of of Orson F. Whitney's talk now the how how do we how do we come to receive this how how does at at the time in eighteen or nineteen twenty nine when he's giving this conference address, um, this isn't something that's, that's no. He not. has the a copy of this, and then they make a typescript of it, and and he he gives it to uh, Joseph F. Smith, who was actually the church historian as well as the the prophet. So he he does a lot of things, <laughs> um, and so he uh, um, transfers that copy, but it's not something that's published. So when he's speaking. In conference, he's speaking with this in mind, this promise that the sealing uh, power is is so powerful that in some way even affects those who, through their own agency, don't at least in this life accept it. Now, of course, that that's something that is is can also be a controversial thing, and I think you can see the other side of that argument. People saying, "Well, you're saying that if you're sealed, that your kids don't have to obey." I think, frankly. We don't actually know how all of this works. I do believe that God has provided a way um, to give as much mercy as possible, right? Think about what you think about your Heavenly Father. However much mercy can exist is probably the amount of mercy that does exist, right? I don't think that we think should be thinking of God as some kind of tyrant desperate to throw everybody into a hell that we've already established doesn't even really exist. But even when it comes to the various kingdoms that people can be in and the areas of progression in and out of those kingdoms, our father is more merciful than I think we are we are willing to admit. And we don't know the end of all things. And in fact, that's the end of our, our discussion here about, because you're probably wondering, okay, you've given me a lot of sources from both sides. Thank you for confusing me and not helping at all. That was actually one of the main points of the podcast, is if we can fill your mind with a whole bunch of confusing questions. No, what I, what I want to say is what the church's official statement on it was. And after being asked a question, 
1952, the Secretary of the First Presidency, Joseph L. Anderson, uh, wrote in a letter a response about this. Asked the question, can you progress from kingdom to kingdom? Is there any type of progression after this life? The response from the Secretary of the First Presidency was, the brethren direct me to say that the church has never announced a definite doctrine on this point. Some of the brethren have held the view that it was possible in the course of progression to advance from one glory to another, invoking the principle of eternal progression. Others of the brethren have taken the opposite view. But as stated, the church has never announced a definite doctrine on this point. So he, uh, Joseph L. Anderson makes very clear there, right? There are even apostles who feel very strongly about the idea that there isn't any progression in the next life. We, we read some of them. There are also those who feel strongly that there is progression in the next life, like, like President J. Reuben Clark, which we, we read. But the reality is that the church hasn't actually revealed the doctrine on it. It hasn't been revealed to the church, that God has not revealed that fully. So I'm not saying there's obviously progression between kingdoms. I'm not saying that. I'm also not saying there's obviously not progression between kingdoms. And the reason why I'm not willing to say either of those things is the church is saying that it hasn't been revealed. You can certainly find different apostles, teachers, that, are, uh, that, that think that the afterlife is one way or the other. And in this case, we actually have a statement from the church saying that, well, we don't really know. We know that agency is essential in people being exalted. We also know that mercy is the defining characteristic of our Father in heaven and Jesus Christ. How those two things interplay to allow both a progression that is based upon learning, knowledge, and actions, and the power of the atonement, those tentacles of mercy reaching out after people, I don't think we know. I will say that I, I personally, as I said before, I, I believe that we will be surprised after this life how incredibly loving and merciful our, our Father in Heaven is. That He who sent His Son into the world to suffer horrifically so that we might have our sins taken from us is also going to be as merciful as he can be because he loves us, because he's our Father. The very fact that there are kingdoms that even the vilest of sinners go to, that after they suffer they will go to heaven, is evidence that our God is a God of mercy. It's not a vengeance and wrath. This isn't Jonathan Edwards' God. This isn't the God who created a hell so that almost everyone who ever existed would burn in it forever. This is a father, a loving father, who along with a loving heavenly mother sent spirit children to this world not to suffer, even though we do, sent us here so that we could become like them. And it's a choice we made. We chose that. So I don't know the end result of all those things, but I will say, you know, those things can be revealed over time, even on the same topic. Um, the idea of salvation. Joseph Smith himself 
has to learn a little bit at a time. There's a hidden gem in one of the earliest revelations Joseph Smith receives. And um, it's only going to fully come to fruition when Joseph Smith receives the revelation on baptisms for the dead. Okay, If you think about Latter-day Saints, one of the things that really sets us apart from other Christians, just ask your Christian friend, do you have to be baptized to be saved? If your Christian friend is not Catholic, the answer is going to be no, right? Or if they belong to some, you know, various small sect or whatever. But the reality is, one of the fundamental premises of Protestantism is that you aren't saved by by works. Of course, Protestants believe in getting baptized. Of course, Lutherans are baptized and Presbyterians are baptized. Baptists are baptized. But though the name might imply it, Baptists don't believe that you're actually saved by being baptized. They don't believe baptism is necessary for salvation because that's a work. Well, you say, well, why in the world would they get baptized then? Because Jesus told them to. And if you're a Latter-day Saint listening to this, you actually are a lot closer to that ideology than you think you are, right? Why do young men and young women serve missions, right? Why, why especially do young men, serve, serve missions? Is it because if they don't go on a mission, they won't be saved, they have no possibility of going to the celestial kingdom? Well, we've had multiple church authorities say, no. My own father didn't, didn't serve a mission. Uh, my, my dad was inactive. He... He was, uh, uh, his mom died when he was 12. His dad abandoned him when he was 15. He barely had any contact uh, with the church in any positive way. And he didn't serve a mission. Does that mean my dad can't go to the celestial kingdom? Oh, he can't go now. He missed out. It's over. Too bad. You can repent, but not for some things, right? Um, Well, no, we don't believe that. Well, do we believe that if people don't go on missions, that the person who's there living in Kenya, who would have accepted the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, had this missionary gone and preached to him, that that person in Kenya now is going to burn in hell forever because they didn't get to accept it? Well, we don't believe that either because we believe every single person is going to have an opportunity to be exalted. And we already don't believe in hell, sorry. I mean, we already believe that, 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 that hell is not the ultimate end, but we believe that every single person is going to have an opportunity to be exalted. That most of that teaching, most of that conversion is actually going to happen in the next life. So if we don't believe that if I don't go on a mission, that it's keeping someone else out of the celestial kingdom, or it's keeping myself out of the celestial kingdom, why in the world do I go on a mission? Because... God asked me to, and I love God. It's not about my eternal end. It's about I love God, so I do what God wants me to do. This is how most Protestants feel about baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. Your faith saves you. I get baptized because Jesus told me to get baptized. So why in the world would I love Jesus and not do what he tells me to do? Right. So Latter-day Saints come along and they're they're saying something very different. They're saying that baptism is actually essential for salvation. Right? You you get 
some of this in the Bible, right? There's a reason why Catholics believe that baptism is essential for salvation. Mark 16, 16, right? And he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, and he that believeth not shall be damned. But that actually leaves a little bit of wiggle room, right? It's he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Well, it seems like baptism is not the essential thing. Belief is. And so Martin Luther or John Calvin would read Mark 16, 16 and say, well, it's the belief that's the essential part, not the baptism part. But for Latter-day Saints, they have this teaching, but in a little bit more direct form from the Lord himself in 3 Nephi chapter 11, verses 33 and 34. And whoso believeth in me and is baptized, the same shall be saved. And they are they who shall inherit the kingdom of God. And whoso believeth not in me and is not baptized shall be damned. So now it's you have this addition here that baptism is somehow part of that couplet. So that makes a pretty strong case for Latter-day Saint theology that baptism is absolutely essential. If, if you're not baptized, you shall be damned. We just read that, okay? So you're not baptized. The problem is the Book of Mormon also says in Mosiah 15, 22, they that have died before Christ came in their ignorance, not having salvation declared unto them, have a part in the first resurrection or have eternal life being redeemed by the Lord. Okay, so you have to be baptized in order to be saved except for all of the people who died before Christ came, they will have part in the first resurrection and have eternal life. So there's already a giant caveat that's there. You have to, except when you don't, which is most of the time. And because Jesus is saying this shortly after his resurrection, I mean, almost everyone who's ever lived would fall under that Mosiah category. And then Joseph Smith is going to receive in one of his earlier revelations, this uh, 1831 revelation, it's a, it's a revelation, D&C 45. Doctrine and Covenants section 45 is talking about the signs leading up to the second coming of Jesus. Latter-day Saints, unlike many Christians at the time, and, and this is going to be a surprise to many of you, you probably assume, you know, your, your evangelical Christian friends, they believe that Jesus is coming and he's going to come in power and glory. And they might even talk to you about a rapture where they're lifted up and, you know, the wicked are left behind and you get, you get a whole nice TV series out of that. Um, in, in Joseph Smith's time, most Protestants did not believe that they were living on the edge of Jesus coming. Now, some, there's some few did, but they were outliers and they were castigated. And Latter-day Saints are among those outliers that they believe Jesus is coming and he's coming soon and he's coming in power and he's coming in glory and you, you know, better have the lamp ready. You know what I mean? That, 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 that you've got to be ready for this to happen. Well, as, as part of that discussion, as the Lord is giving Joseph this revelation, the Lord has in what's now just one verse, it's DNC 45, 54, this incredibly uh, amazing truth. That the heathen nations, okay, again, heathen, defining heathen, heathen by definition is someone who doesn't believe in Jesus, okay? Remember that the Protestant world is saying, in order to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus. DNC 45:54, the heathen nations would be redeemed, and they that knew no law shall have part in the first resurrection. Well, the first resurrection, those are the people that are going to the celestial kingdom. So you can see that there's already this huge contradiction. It's seeming contradiction in the scriptures, right? In Mark and in 3 Nephi, if you aren't baptized, you can't be saved. And yet in DNC 45, 54, 
the heathen nations, who I'm guessing aren't getting baptized because they don't believe in Jesus, are going to be part of the first resurrection and go to the celestial kingdom. What, what do you do with this apparent contradiction? Well, the contradiction doesn't resolve itself. Even though Joseph has this powerful vision of, of the afterlife, he sees in, in DNC 76, he sees the celestial kingdom and the terrestrial kingdom and the celestial kingdom. I think it's safe to say that after 1832, Joseph Smith knows more about the kingdoms of heaven and the afterlife than any person who lives on earth, certainly, and probably anyone who's ever lived on the earth outside of, of, of Jesus. Joseph Smith knows more about it. He's had those, those kingdoms unfolded to him to where he understands them. And yet, four years later, four years after the fact, when the Kirtland Temple is being dedicated, well, uh, during the same time that it is, Joseph Smith has another vision of the celestial kingdom. So this isn't his first rodeo. He saw the celestial kingdom before, back in 1832 with DNC 76. This revelation is now known as Doctrine and Covenant section 137. And he sees the celestial kingdom, and, and he's not marveling about the celestial kingdom because he, he's already seen that. I don't know if he's thinking this is old hat to me. I've already, you don't know how many times I've seen heaven. Thanks, I've got it. But there is something that he sees in that vision that stuns him. He sees his brother Alvin, his brother Alvin who died without being baptized into the church. Joseph's response is that he's stunned, like, like I talked about. He said he marveled how it was that he had obtained an inheritance in that kingdom, seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord had set his hand to gather Israel the second time and had not been baptized for the remission of sins. Joseph Smith is stunned. So what does that mean? When you talk about prophets and the knowledge that they have, prophets are, are men, right? They, they are subject to the same vicissitudes of knowledge that we all are. You can't expect a prophet to know something before God reveals it. So if you're saying, well, how come we don't know whether or not there's progression in the kingdoms? We should know. I feel like that's something we should know. Well, you know, duly noted. Thank you for your opinion. But the reality is sometimes things haven't been revealed yet. If you were a Latter-day Saint living in the 1830s, you had to believe a contradiction. If someone said to you, oh, you, you Mormons, you, you, you Mormons believe that you have to be baptized to be saved? Man, that's crazy. I mean, we get baptized, but we don't believe you have to be baptized. You would say, yes, yes, you have to be baptized in, in order to be saved. What about like people live in like Africa and Asia and you've never even heard about Jesus? Well, they're, they're also saved, right? I mean, if you were living in the church between 1832 and 1840, you had to believe a contradiction. You had to believe that you absolutely had to be baptized in this life in order to be saved, except when you didn't, which was most of the time. How are both of those things work? And, and, and you can tell if you were to ask Joseph in 1835 or 1830, you know, 1834, is Alvin going to the celestial kingdom? Clearly, Joseph would have said no. I mean, that's why he's stunned that he sees Alvin in the celestial kingdom. Why would he say no? Well, because Doctrine and Covenant section 76 says you have to be baptized to go to the celestial kingdom. Third Nephi says you have to be baptized to be saved. Mark 16, 16, 
baptism is essential to what we believe, and he wasn't baptized. I mean, that, that's a sad thought, personally, right? That Joseph must have lived with that idea that his, his dear brother that he loved so much, that shaped so much of his young life, that his brother couldn't go to the celestial kingdom while Joseph was trying to bring the rest of the world to it. And then God revealed more knowledge. All who have died without a knowledge of the gospel who would have received it if they'd been permitted to tarry shall be heirs of the celestial kingdom of God. Also, all those who shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it who would have received it with all their hearts shall be heirs of that kingdom. So once again, while this is declaring a truth, the Lord here is declaring a truth of doctrine that people who would have accepted the gospel are going to go to the celestial kingdom even if they don't accept it in this life, even if they didn't know about it in this life. It doesn't actually resolve our contradiction. You absolutely have to be baptized to go to the celestial kingdom, except when you don't, which is almost everyone, which is what you'd have to believe. So sometimes people get really caught up in the contradictions of doctrine, the seeming contradictions of doctrine. And the reality, that's what this was. It really looked like God was saying two different things. Baptism is essential. Unlike any other Protestant religion, it's essential. You can't be exalted without baptism. Unless you would have accepted the gospel anyway or live in a heathen nation, then you're exalted. I mean, it, 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 it required you to just kind of suspend your disbelief and say, I don't know how it is that Alvin goes to the celestial kingdom without being baptized, but God says that he will, so he must. Now, four years later, God is going to reveal to Joseph how it is that Alvin goes to the celestial kingdom. He's going to reveal the doctrine of baptisms for the dead and work for the dead that will make it possible so that every single person who has ever lived on this earth will have the same opportunity at exaltation. And God fulfills both halves of what he decreed. Baptism is essential of anyone going to the celestial kingdom and every single person will have that opportunity to have it. But it appeared like a contradiction at first. So, I mean, by way of application, I think it's important for, for members of the church to think about that. Sometimes there are things we believe that we, we think we see as a contradiction, that we don't understand. I don't understand how God is going to make it so that my, you know, grandmother who was married to three different husbands and sealed to all three of them because you know after she died we, we did her temple work and sealed her to all three of them i don't understand how that sealing's going to work because what she can't be married to all of them in the next life but we sealed her to all three of them so how's that and, and we work ourselves up into a frenzy because we don't know the answer it looks like a contradiction i don't understand how that could work and maybe all that's going on is that god is not yet fully revealed all that we need to know to be able to understand these doctrines. The restoration is not over. As President Nelson declares, the restoration continues. You're all part of the restoration. Every time you declare the gospel to your friends and, and your relatives, every time you share any part of the truth, every time you try to help somebody because you know it's what Jesus wants you to do, you're bringing about the restoration, not just of the kingdom of God on earth, but of this promised Zion that sometime in the future, before Jesus comes, we are, go we are going to collect together as a, as a people of Zion. We're going to love one another the way that Jesus 
loves us. That's one of the things that drove people joining the church in the first place. The idea that you could live somewhere where everyone loved each other more than they loved themselves. You know, we, we say greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Many people are willing to lay down their life for the gospel, they say, but are you willing to love someone else and sacrifice for someone else as if it was yourself, as if it was your own family? It's easy to love your family. Jesus tells us that, right? That the God allows the, the rain to fall upon the rich and the poor. I mean, if you love them that love you, what reward have you? It's easy to love your family. Please still do continue to love your family. I'm not advocating against that. At the same time, wicked people love their families. Mafia dons and drug cartel leaders love their families. What makes you a disciple of Christ is whether or not you love people that you don't get anything from, that you don't have a connection from, that you love them simply because you know that they are a brother or sister of your Father in heaven and that your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, loves them and that he died for them and he desperately wants to extend them mercy. So I don't know all the answers of how progression works in the next life. I don't think I'll ever know them all. But I do know that God, in his mercy, desperately wants us to reach out a hand of our own mercy to other people to help them repent, feel loved, and, and, and to come back into the fold. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation about Doctrine and Covenants section 76. Uh, and I hope that you will share this podcast with other people you think uh, might like it. I hope you'll give us a review if you like it. And um, hopefully we can continue to uh, present some content to you that you appreciate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.